Okay, well, first, a little background. Everybody say background. background. The book of Daniel is about a guy named... Daniel. You guys are smart. It's about a guy named Daniel. You're a bright bunch. Not only that, but the book is largely autobiographical. It is not written in the first person until the second half of the book, but the narrator is writing about his own experience. And what is the name of our narrator or author? Correct. So it's a book entitled Daniel. It is written by Daniel, and it is about Daniel. Are we all on the same page? Say yes. Okay, you're tracking. Daniel lives in the city of Jerusalem. He's born into a Jewish family. He is from among God's people. Uh, he is among the well-educated. He is of noble blood. However, when he was a young man, quite possibly a teenager, the city of Jerusalem was besieged by a group of people that we call the Babylonians. And their king was a guy named Nebuchadnezzar II. We will, for the purposes of this sermon at least, call him King Neb. And over a period of years, King Neb ordered multiple not a single deportation, but multiple deportations of God's people out of their home and into a city called Babylon. It was, at its time, the largest city in uh, human history. Um, the period of time has become known to historians and even common man as the Babylonian ca captivity or the Babylonian Exile. So Daniel's new home was a very pagan place, unlike Jerusalem. Uh, and Daniel has a few buddies who are taken along with him. How many of you know it's good to travel in groups? All right. So Daniel and his friends are taken into captivity. Uh, they were studious. They were uh, literate. They could read. They could write. Uh, so these young people were among the most desirable of captives to King Neb. He trained his people to take the brightest of citizens of Jerusalem because, well, once they were indoctrinated, once they were propagandized, once they were, to use the words that the Russians are using today in Ukraine, re-educated, it's all the same thing, then these strong teenagers, so the king thought, would become responsible, productive little pagans in Babylon. I suppose this could be one excuse teenagers and I prayed for you this morning up in that area of the balcony, uh, that you have an excuse not to do your homework because the less educated you are, the less likely you are to be carted off into captivity should a captivity ever take place, right? Don't tell your folks I said that. You didn't hear that here. Um, but look at this. Even though Daniel is going to tell us the stories of he and his teenage friends, Daniel likely wrote this book after 70-some years in captivity when he was about 90 years of age. 
How many of you know our senior saints in this room have a lot to say? And that we ought to listen to them. They have much life experience to share. You don't grow out of your prime when you're being used by God. Amen? You grow into it. How many of you would say, I have met more robust prayer warriors in their latter years than in their earlier years? See, this closeness to Jesus thing, this sanctification process, we just, we just be, become sweeter and sweeter in God's goodness and are a pure reflection of himself over time. So we thank the Lord for those who move mountains, for those that pray for the kingdom to advance. All right, why are we studying this book? Let's talk about the purpose. Uh, How many of you know that the world would love for God's people to become productive little pagans? That's what God's enemy, God's adversary, Satan, would devise. Yet, How many of you know that as Christ's followers, we're to be in the world, but not of it, not take on its persona, not not take on its attributes. Uh, So our challenge today is much like Daniel and his teenage friends. Challenge in their day, we must engage a pagan culture without compromising our faith. The winds of culture will continue to shift, will continue to blow, will continue to heave and hoe, and to maintain influence in the culture, we cannot bow to it. We're to honor God in a culture that's opposed to God. We're called to be anchored. We're called to speak truthfully. We're committed to compassion. We're called to stand strong. Would you agree with that? Amen. All right. So we're going to read this text. This is my most um, thrilling part of the morning. I just feel like Daniel put it in, in such succinct phrasing that I couldn't possibly tell you in any shorter amount of time about this story than just to read his words. So 21 verses out of chapter one. Here we go. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came over to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These Nebuchadnezzar carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then King Neb ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelite boys from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect. These defect, excuse me, these guys were ripped. These kids were studs, right? Handsome, good-looking boys showing aptitude for every kind of learning. They were bright, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach them, Ashpenaz, the language and literature of who? Of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter into the king's service. And among those who were chosen for some, uh, from some of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, 
And Azariah and the chief official, Ashpenaz, gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, the name Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king. I'm afraid of King Neb, who has assigned your food and your drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head if you don't eat the king's diet. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel and his buddies, please test your servants. For 10 days, Daniel says, give us nothing but vegetables, nothing to eat besides that, water to drink, and then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in in accordance with what you see, with how our bodies have changed over the course of 10 days. So he agreed, the official did to this and tested them. At the end of the 10 days, the boys, the Hebrew boys, look healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their food choice and the wine they were to drink and gave them all vegetables instead. How many of you parents agree vegetables are biblical? (laughs) It's in the text. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding and all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king, and to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to King Neb. The king then talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, none equal to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the pagan magicians and all the enchanters in his whole kingdom. Last verse, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So King Cyrus is the guy that came in with the Persians and wiped out the Babylonians. So Daniel was there all 70 years of captivity. While in captivity, what pressure did Daniel face? Here's where we're getting into your outline. And, and by relation, what pressure will we face in modern day Babylon? Are you ready? Pressure number one, pressure to change our thinking. Pressure to change our thinking. The world wants you to believe that you aren't competent enough to stand in the king's palace until you think like the king. You don't have the ability, the the world says. The world wants to teach you, to teach us, to teach your children its literature. Just this week, a friend, a parent at Grace sent me a snapshot of a few pages of a required reading assignment at a public school in the Lake Norman area. I won't name the book, I won't name the school, but what I read on those pages was appalling, disturbing, 
You may be old enough to remember Dorothy's quote from the Wizard of Oz, Toto, I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Church, what I'm telling you is that we're not in Jerusalem. We're in Babylon. This ain't Mayberry. We're not in Leave it to Beaver. We're not in a Walton's episode. Good night, everybody. Good night, Mama. Good night, Ben. How many of you remember this show? Anybody in here? Am I just speaking to a, okay, few of you. Yes. Good night, Elizabeth. Good night, John Boy. Good night, Jim Bob. Good night, Jim Bob. Good night, Jim Bob. We're in Babylon. We're in a post-Christian society. Children and teenagers across this country are facing re-education, indoctrination, we might call it pagan nation. I'm not propagating fear. Greater is he that is within us than he that is within the world. Amen? We're not scared of this. We're not afraid by this, but it's the truth. Glory to God, we win in the end. So what I am saying is that we need to gird up our proverbial loins We need to be watchmen on the walls. Practically, we need to pay attention. We need to know what's on our kids' smartphones and devices, their iPads. Listen, if I pay for it, I own it. I get to look at it. Sorry, not sorry, teenagers. We need to examine required reading lists. We need to have conversations before they have the conversations. We need to have open bedroom doors in our homes for the lion's share of the time. What do kids need privacy for? They don't need to change their clothes at all hours of the day and night. The world wants to teach us its literature, and it will if we allow it. Number two, pressure to change our identity, our identity. There's pressure to change that. Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar, Hananias to Shadrach, Mishael's to Meshach, Azariah's to Abednego. This was done rapidly to confuse these young men so that they would not cling to their culture from Jerusalem, their religious identity from Jerusalem, but rather quickly fall in line and assimilate with the Babylonian culture, ridding the boys of their their Hebrew names was enacted to obliterate, to smash any semblance of the God of Jacob. And don't overlook the truth that the guy issuing the name changes is himself living in what I'll call identity dysphoria. He's the chief of the eunuchs. A group of males who were castrated so that they would then depend on the royal court. Number one, the king didn't want them messing around with his harem. Number two, the king wanted to prevent a mutiny. So the king thought, if they're confused about their sexuality, I own them. They're less likely to storm the castle. 
Church family, the enemy knows we are less likely to storm the gates of hell if we're confused about who we are in Jesus Christ. So guard your minds today. Paul told the church at Philippi, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, these are the things, these are the things that we meditate on. These are the things that we think about. Last week I shared with the Grace staff at a retreat some of what I find to be the most hopeful words in all the scripture. Paul told the church at Corinth, and you need to get through some, some unhopeful words to get to the hopeful words. I'll start with, the, with that, that that is lacking hope. Or do you not know, Paul writes, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Don't think like the Babylonians. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that, and this is the hope, and that is what some of you were. Isn't that beautiful? That is what some of you were. Apparently, they weren't that anymore. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Church family, if anything on that laundry list described you, you've been washed. That's what you were. You've been sanctified, you've been justified. Don't let Babylon take that from you. Number three, there's pressure to change our worship. The names given in verse seven reflect Babylonian gods. The name Daniel, the Hebrew name, means Yahweh is my judge. Isn't that beautiful? But he gets a new name by the court official, Belteshazzar. That means, O lady of the god Bel, protect the king. I'd prefer Daniel. <laughs> Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. Shadrach, the new name, means command of Aku, the moon god. Mishael means, this is my favorite one. I read this, I almost shouted around my, where I was studying. Mishael, mean, Mishael means, who is what God is? Who is what God is? Can we just stop and ask that very question? Who is what God is? Man, when I read that, I thought the Burrises need another boy so I can name him Mishael. <laughs> Who is what God is? I didn't think about having another kid for very long, but I, <laughs> I did think about it for a moment. Meshach, new pagan name means I am of little account from who is what God is to I am of little account. How many of you feel as though you are of little account? Like you don't matter to anybody. Like you're worthless. Can I introduce you to Jesus this morning? He declares you are of great worth. He declares you matter to him. He loves you with an endless love. He's faithful when you're not. You are not of little account. 
Church family, don't worship the gods of materialism and image and romance and safety and career. Why? They ain't what God is. They ain't what God is. You ever, have you ever participated in a really charismatic church and heard them say, can't nobody do me like Jesus? Can't nobody do me like Jesus? Ain't nobody saved me. Ain't nobody set me free. Ain't nobody filled me with the Holy Ghost. Ain't nobody turned my life around. They ain't what God is. Amen? He's faithful. So be careful who you cling to. Number four, pressure to change our way of living. The king tried to get them to eat what he eats, to drink what he drinks, yet Daniel and his teenage friends chose no thank you. Why did they say no thank you? Scholars have asked this question. Some have said that their resolve came from an intent only to eat ceremonially clean foods. That is, their Jewish law forbade them to eat pork, for example, but this explanation doesn't tackle it fully because they also choose not to drink the king's wine, and the king's wine would have been ceremonially clean for them. It would have been okay for them to drink in their custom. Others have suggested that they didn't want to eat the food because it had first been offered to idols, to Babylonian idols, but the vegetables that the boys chose to eat would have also been offered first to idols, so that too seems unlikely. A third view is that they were following a vegetarian diet for health reasons. Many people in our day have enjoyed the benefits of a, quote, Daniel fast. Beans, lentils, nuts, seeds, oils, fats, but there's no Old Testament law that would have prescribed the Jews to take on this idea. And so a fourth view seems most plausible, and this is the simplest of all of them. Daniel and his buddies avoided the king's table as a symbolic way of avoiding the many temptations that Babylon would offer them. They weren't adhering to some Jewish rule. They just thought to themselves, we can't eat this because this looks like, smells like Babylon. Church family, what are you consuming? What are you watching? What are you spending your time on? Where are you hobbying? What pastimes are you enjoying that look like and smell like Babylon. In conclusion, here's what happens when we resolve to not be defiled. This is where we take a turn. This is awesome. First, if we choose not to eat the king's delicacies, number one, God gives us insight and understanding to live effectively. It is miraculous. Verse 17 tells us, God himself, let this be the case with our kids, Lord. God himself became the boy's teacher. God himself gave them their learning. God himself gave them skill in literature. Did you know, church, that Babylon is not the only institution that can educate a child? We can. Parents can. The church can. Lord, we pray that you, not Babylon, amen, We'll educate our kids. Number two, God grants us favor with people. 
Verses 19 and 20, the king finds Daniel and friends to be more astute, more well-rounded, more capable than the boys trained in Babylon from the outstart. Ten times better, the text says. They even knew all the magic tricks. I hated that kind of kid growing up. When I would do a magic trick and he'd tell everybody how I did it. But these were the Hebrew boys. And if we're obedient, God will give us favor with people. Number three, God positions us to be a people of influence. I love verse 19. And the king spoke with them. Do you desire to be the kind of person that has the ear of the king, the ear of the mayor, the ear of the fire chief, the ear of the police chief, the ear of the principal, the ear of the superintendent? It's not accomplished by shouting at them. It's not accomplished by being right. It's not accomplished by furrowing your brow. It's accomplished by being resolved in your heart, but being gracious in your approach. Notice that under no circumstances did Daniel try to usurp the king's throne. A pastor I once sat under said, Jesus didn't come with a sword and a scepter. He came with a basin and a towel. Christianity is not us against them. Christianity is us for them. Jesus for them. Daniel and his friends, they didn't boycott. They served in the presence of the king. Daniel and his friends stood out not because they stood in opposition to, they stood out because they stood strong while at the same time relating to those around them. 